What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 134, Legacy. The winter of 1409 saw England celebrating its victory over Owen. Many shared toasts over bonfires and triumphal parades rang through the streets of London. But even as his son, heirs, and wife languished in the uh, Tower of London, Owen remained free from English jails or executioners. This consternating reality meant that the crown had to at least worry about him enough to keep his family alive, both as a threat and as a negotiation tactic. As you can understand, if they have your family and you try and cause trouble, they can threaten to kill them. That tactic would become less and less useful as time would go on, but nonetheless, it was something that Henry IV and later his son, Henry V, would continue to hold over the uh, family of Owen Glyndwr for quite some time to come. By 1415, there was now a new king on the throne, as Prince Henry was now King Henry V. He would offer olive branches to Owen over many different things, including offering pardons, suggesting that if he and his loyalists did homage to the king, he would actually receive a pardon, and of course the release of his wife and children. By this point, his son had already passed away due to illness, and later on things would continue to go downhill from there for his family. Some academics, like Professor Davies, see Owen as someone too stubborn to accept defeat. He felt that Owen would rather spend his days as a peasant on the run, always looking behind him so as to avoid capture, and therefore he would never live a truly peaceful life. And maybe that to a degree is true. The fact that we've mentioned in the past Owen's unwillingness to put up with surrender with having his country defeated, having his castles taken, and yet still kicking on and still trying to at least gain a measure of revenge. And in his writings to the kings of France, he came across as someone who was looking for vengeance and wasn't really worried about, you know, being seen as someone magnanimous or someone willing to come to terms and in that respect, we've seen him be very much the leader that you would expect in the case of this situation where, you know, he's not going to take surrender. He knows what happens to, you know, outlaws and rebels in battle with Henry IV and in previous kings. They don't frequently end well. So just giving homage to a king might not mean a whole lot. Edward I, of course famously killed a bunch of Scottish nobles for similar reasoning. And the reality is, is that I think with all of those examples and the general tendency in medieval politics to 
effectively be as devious as possible because you see yourself as a God-given king allows a lot of latitude that wouldn't necessarily be the case for most people. And I think the other thing for Owen is that even if he does give in and does do homage, what's left for him? You know, even if he gets his family back, and, and maybe he would at that point. Let's, let's, for argument's sake, Henry V is much more magnanimous than Henry IV. And so instead of this vengeful, irritated king who wants to take his vengeance out on the person who caused him so much trouble and strife, he actually says, no, no, we're going to call this good. That's it. We're done. Do we think Owen gets back his territory, comes back to being a minor lord in under the observance of Henry? I mean, that's very dubious. And I think the likely, more likely path in a best case scenario is, is effectively he just becomes a peasant and maybe doesn't even have any land he can settle. He then has to rely on relatives to supply him with land to give him an option to survive because at the end of the day the English kings don't have to give him anything and he's not their subject realistically so yes could it have ended better possibly but the realistic side of this is if you're Owen you know where this is going to go this is going to go with you being captured arrested tried and probably summarily executed and drawn and quartered and your head ends up on a pike somewhere. Because realistically, that's that's how medieval politics worked. It didn't work with nicety or kindness or dignity. It was all about showing your strength, showing how much you were in charge and making people pay who crossed you because you knew if you didn't, the likelihood is they'd cross you again. All you have to do is look at the Percy's in that example and, and what they'd been doing. And certainly if you let Owen live, what's the likelihood he's going to mount yet another revolution down the road? I mean, if I'm King Henry V, I think it's pretty high. So with all of that in mind, even though Owen now is a very older gentleman, he can still be sort of the object for Welsh resistance. And even in his old age would still be someone considered important enough in the Welsh community. So to capture him in some respect, even if it's just on a feint of, do us homage and we'll pardon you. I could see that being very much the English strategy and tactics of, we're going to offer this to you, but really we're not really offering this to you. Now, again, as I said, if the best case scenario is they did, even if he gets the pardon, he's not going back to the previous position and realistically, he still is that threat. So why would you give him back the right and the ability to make income so that he could continue to finance being a threat? So with all of that in mind, from a strategic standpoint, it would be ridiculous for the English king to either A, let him live, or B, have any sort of authority within the English system. So in all likelihood, Owen is either dead or he's impoverished and family or no, you know, it didn't matter. And the realistic standpoint is, if you look at this, is that they starved his family to death. So the fact that he wouldn't give in and wouldn't accept their position, they were of no use to the king anymore, that family. So it was just as easy for him to just ignore them and basically mistreat them because now they weren't 
something of a chip that he could use in some negotiation tactic. And, you know, make no mistake, Henry V, for some, has been perceived as better than Henry IV. And maybe he was, but he was still a medieval king with medieval tactics and medieval thought processes. And the idea that you would be vengeful, that you would hold others to account for slights that were done to you, or let's be honest, in this case, a major situation in which this person has opposed you fiscally, militarily, and has actually signed up an alliance with your greatest enemy, I don't think he's can realistically let him live. So even though there is this pardon on the table, I think it has to be taken in a measure of this is a pardon in name only and that Owen's life was always going to be ended if he didn't, if he actually parlayed with the king at some point and tried to do this. I, I just don't believe that Henry V would have accepted the homage as being the end of the story and suddenly Glyndor gets his lands back and and all of a sudden, everything's copacetic. It never was going to be that way. And I think it's it, it's foolish to think it would, based on past kings and their tactics. And certainly, Henry V doesn't come across as being that different from his father in that respect. So I think that's important to know. Now, of course, does Owen suddenly, by not accepting this, get into a better position? No, he doesn't. Um, in fact, I think it's likely he eventually makes his way to the house of his daughter, uh, Alice Scudamore, who had previously married Sir John Scudamore in secret. And John himself had actually fought against Owen in, in at least one siege that we know of. So it's a bit surprising to find out that this marriage had happened. In fact, it was so surprising to the general public because it was kept secret. And it actually didn't come out until 20 years after this that he had married her. And because of this finally being exposed by and to King Henry VI, he lost his position as sheriff of the local area and was dishonored by being related to Owen Glyndor. So you can see, again, that relationship is problematic. And, and the fact that Scudamore is in that position is interesting. So if Owen does go to Scudamore's house and his holdings and effectively lives out the remainder of his days there, be they three, four, five, or even ten years after that, you know, his life is kept very secret. Only the people that live in the area would even know him or know who he is. Obviously, anybody who'd ever met him would know him on sight, but we know that there are very few images of Owen in life that we have. You know, there's there's the seal that was given to France, which has his picture on it. You know, there may have been things that were kept in the family, but honestly, there doesn't seem to be anything left of him. So he could have been just some stranger who moved there, some peasant that, you know, maybe was involved with the war, but wasn't necessarily important to the war. And we do have this reputation of Owen as being able to hide himself as a peasant, which is how he escapes Harlech, they say. So all of these reasons gives probable cause to this. And some have claimed that he is buried there, that there is a grave for him on that land even today. But we've never had fully determined proof, which is part of what makes his 
non-public death so important to the Welsh psyche for many years to come because now Owen goes from being this this normal human being to being a myth and a legend something of a person who just disappears doesn't we don't you know we don't have him there and you see his like Llewellyn the last for example you know exactly what happened to him you know he got his head lopped off in the end you know his brother did too you know most of his family was put off into either the tower of london or sent to monasteries and kept away from having kids and getting married and and the entire line was effectively extinguished in the process that is documentable it is obvious it is something we can follow owens if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart kato protein plus or vegan and veggies also discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast on-the-go lunch snacks and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long what are you waiting for get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals get chef prepared meals on the table in two minutes with factors ready to eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month, that's code WelshHistoryPod50 at factormeals.com slash WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Disappearance acts as much in an Arthurian fashion of being a way to say that instead of being dead, he lives on. You know, this this concept of, you know, he's hiding in a cave somewhere asleep until we need him again. These old mythologies which come and probably are some of the oldest mythologies that we have in, in the island nation of Britain. You know, these ideals of ancient heroes that could be called upon from death to come back and fight for the living, to overthrow a tyrant or to overthrow enemies. You know, it, it's something that is steeply held in the belief system of most people. Like, all you have to do is think of, like, for example, in Christian ideals, Jesus Christ is imagined to come back to return, his second coming, as they call it. And his second coming is perceived as being him coming back from the dead, bringing with him the instruments to take out the enemies of God, right? So in in his case, it's the end of the world and there's judgment and blah, blah, blah. But that it's very common amongst all religions. This is not just, or all mythologies for that matter. This is not specifically strictly a Christian one. And it runs the gambit. This idea of an old hero or an old person of note who comes back to, you know, return the world to where it's supposed to be effectively. And so that's the image you get when Owen just disappears. You don't get this image of an old beaten man who just dies of old age and hiding out in his daughter's household, basically hiding his true identity from anybody who they didn't trust. You get this image of this noble warrior king who disappears only to be called back at some future date, some mysterious, unannounced future date, might I add, which will give him a kind of a, a, a sheen that the likes of King Arthur had, you know, that, that image of this noble warrior hero who was so noble that he, you know, didn't die. He's kept by the Lady of the Lake in some mysterious circumstance, ready to return, you know. So those kind of concepts float around Owen even to this day. Of course, now it's a cute myth that we talk about, but but it is something that bards kind of projected this ideal of, and so you get this kind of thing still floating around in, in the Welsh mythologies going up to the modern era. Many scholars have suggested that Owen likely died not long after 1415. In fact, some even say 1415 is his death date. From my perspective, his age, the hard life he's had to lead in this period of his life, keep in mind he's in his 60s or his 70s at this point. He's been on the run. He's been a fugitive. He's had to hide out in places which probably aren't the greatest. You know, sleeping rough quite often would be common for for these kind of foreign insurgents and rebels. So that kind of thing would be happening. And of course, yes, their experience and their uh, ability to handle these things are different than ours, right? Like if you put me out there living in the rough, 
uh, I probably wouldn't fare very well. And I'm quite a number of years younger than Owen. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, it was something more common, something done more often. And so we have to keep in mind that it wouldn't be quite the same. But this is also an era where if you get sick, you could die. And a cold could kill you, let alone anything else. So there's lots of things that you can put down there. So the fact that he's lived this long and had this kind of life and effectively that stress and that hard living would have probably shortened most people's lives. So typically when you have these kind of situations happen, when you have a high stress, you have difficult experiences that cause you to have a rougher time you know you're not eating as well you're starving more often than you're you're not uh all of these things can can build up and so once you do get settled back down it can on occasions attack and and just the fact that you're not in this hyper sense of awareness suddenly all this stuff kind of weighs down on you in one big ball and can can cause you to have other problems all of a sudden kick up. We don't know. I mean, this is pure speculation on my part. There's no evidence of it one way or the other. We don't know. We just, the, the general sense is we last hear about him in 1412. We don't hear about him again. That's the last sort of Glyndor-inspired anything that we hear about. And past that point, there is no evidence he lives beyond that. We just have references that we think show that he at least lived till 1415 because if you have Henry V still trying to offer a pardon, it probably means that they are suspicious that he is still alive, but that doesn't mean he is. And that could also be the other thing. So the other thing to keep in mind is playing on Owen along with all the physical stress is the mental stress of having your family imprisoned. Maybe he's heard about his son dying, maybe he hasn't. And certainly, as anyone will know, in those, you know, if you get into a circumstance where they're worrying about family and all of that, all of that plays on you and, and stresses our drivers to illness. And so, again, going back to my point, I guess, we would have to expect that's what happened with Owen, is that eventually just all of this either caught up to him or just his age caught up to him. And either one could be as likely as the other. So with all of that in mind, what are we to make of the legacy of Owen Glyndwr, the last native-born Prince of Wales? I think first and, and the most immediate historical notion is, is that Wales suffered and lost for what amounted to a false hope. The anger at the death of Richard II and the humiliation of the conquest by Edward I and the laws created that caused Wales so much stress and strain for Welsh people that caused a lot of the Welsh nobility to lose power, to lose uh, influence in the English system. These things drove the rebellion, but they won't go away. In fact, they'll worsen for the next 100 years because at the end of the day, the Welsh will still be needing to pay, in quotes, for what they did in rebelling against the English. So the English will continue these harsh restrictions. So for the immediate period, Wales has taken a beating trying to revolt, trying to get its independence, and effectively what comes out of it is there's a lot less of them around because a lot of 
young men have, and old men have died for this cause, probably some women as well. And in the midst of all of this, their lands have been pillaged, their livelihoods have been destroyed in some cases, their ability to feed their families has been impinged, and so there's a lot more poverty across the land. A lot more of the recovery that's going on is being hindered because in part, in order to make them pay for the cost of this war, the English start to put even more pressure on the Welsh by putting more taxes in, saying that they need to pay effectively an indemnity for having fought the war against them. And so if you're a Welsh person, this war did not work in your favor. And so do you leave that circumstance with a positive attitude or does it make you even less likely to revolt because of how bad it is? Or conversely, does it make you more likely to revolt again because of how bad it is? All of these things we, we can't say for any certainty. We don't really have a window on what the local peasant thought. We don't have a window really even on what most of the nobility in Wales thought of what went on. We only have a small brief interlude of information, and so we can't really say. And most of which is done with perspective of many years down the road. Like we know the writings of Adam of Usk, for example, who seemed to fall into both camps during the war and then came out very anti-Owen later on. Well, of course he's going to be anti-Owen because, of course, the war has ended badly. But during the war, if he'd have been writing his documents, would they have had a different perspective? Would he have a different concept of what was going on? You know, we don't know. And so it's harder to say kind of where the impression for the Welsh is. But you can imagine that losing that war and having such hope taken from you would have a detrimental effect on the population and it would likely fall more in line just because of this. And in fact, what we do see is that the Welsh generally do, if not completely cave in to what's gone on, certainly the amount of issues that the English have for the next 100 years are much smaller than they were in the previous 100. And that is, I think, the combination of everything, right? The poverty, the loss of life, the general inability to get the economy back underway again during that period because you're crushed by so many different things. And I think, you know, and the general lack of population, lack of global area already makes Wales a difficult place to live. Now add to that, you know, half your family's dead and your crops have been taken and you've gone for at least two winters without food, you know, that to last the full winter. So you're starving occasionally because you just cannot feed yourself with what's left. So all of those things would send people into a bit of a spiral. And you can imagine at that point, a lot of people just go, I just, I just want peace. I, I want this to be over. I want to be able to live my life. So I don't even care anymore. And for a lot of peasants, maybe there was no real difference. It's hard to say what they thought beyond that fact. And, and a lot of times we are left to wonder, as I've speculated in the past, about whether or not they just didn't care who was collecting the taxes. You know, because at the end of the day, every monarch, every noble, every lord is still taking the same amount from you. 
So it's not like you gain anything just because there's a different leader and he speaks a different language. So all of that becomes less important to you than it would be, say, to someone else. So all of these things in mind, we, we have to keep that in our mind as we look at the legacy of Owen. But he still has a tremendous legacy to the population of Wales even today. You know, we, we still put up statues to him in Wales. They're still name things after him. He's still a key proponent and example and identifying notion for people across all sorts of spectrums in Wales who look at leaders that have been important to the foundation stones of this country. And I think from that alone, his contribution has been massive. It, has his contribution been a failure? No. But his rebellion was a failure. But his contribution to the Welsh psyche, the Welsh understanding of itself, and the Welsh process of dealing with English dominance, he is an important figure in it and remains so to this day and, and will in all likelihood long after some of the notions of what we think of Wales and what we think of England have passed into into non-existence. These characters live beyond that. Much like Julius Caesar and Boudicca outlive their countries and their and even a faint remembrance of what their tribes and their ideals were at the time. Boudicca, for example, long outlives any understanding of what she was and who she was other than what we get from Tacitus. So these people matter and they have importance. Now, again, was Owen the driver of Welsh independence? No, he was not. Was he the person who became the figurehead of it? Yes. And eventually becomes the leader that everybody looks to. But we have to always remember that within it's not so much the great man that's leading things that makes things happen as much as it is he's the right person in the right position at the right time that just happens to jump in front of the parade, to use a quote from a politician that I once heard say. So I think that is important to remember. And uh, regardless, I am... It, it, he is someone who I consider to be incredibly important. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time covering him over the last year, and I think his uh, his contributions to Welsh history are massive, and I think they're important. And even with so little to go on from his own perspective, we're still able to glean quite a lot of information, and, and it's... It's been a joy covering him, and, and as we go beyond him and talk about the consequences of English matters on Welsh history, uh, it's it's always good to think about, you know, this last point of independence, this last flickering light in the darkness that will become the domination by the English if you were a Welsh nationalist, or the end of a separate Welsh uh, nation in the face of a growing English monarchy that is going to become influenced by Welsh leadership not too far down the road, and we will be getting to that shortly. 
So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for participating. Thank you for your comments, your questions, anything you raise, please be sure to bring them forward to me. I am more than happy to discuss pretty much anything. Uh, and you can reach me at the Welsh history podcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to me on Twitter at Welsh history pod or my own personal Twitter account, which is at Linstead DM. Uh, if you want to follow me there where I talk about things unrelated to Welsh history and, uh, you can find everything we do at distractionsmedia.com, which is the overall kind of umbrella. And, uh, thank you guys for listening. Remember, you can always join us on facebook.com forward slash Welsh history podcast. If you're on Facebook and, uh, I look forward to speaking to you guys again in the next episode. Until then, everyone, take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.